Hello everyone, this is Devin Thorpe, the social entrepreneur at Forbes, and I could not be more excited. We've pegged the meter on my excitement. I have with us Jack Andreka, the famous genius 16-year-old kid who is uh, changing the world of cancer diagnostics. Uh, Jack, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited. It is. Uh, I was first introduced to you uh, when you gave your TED Talk uh, last year, and since then you've become genuinely famous, uh, which is kind of exciting because you're famous for, without having written a pop song, without joining a boy band, you are famous for the good science that you're doing. And, and it wasn't accidental. I think there's sometimes... Some people think, well, it was accidental or there were other people helping him. I think you were very deliberate and focused and have done amazing things at an amazing age. But tell everyone the story of how you came up with your pancreatic cancer diagnostic uh, device. So I actually became interested in pancreatic cancer when I was 13. A close family friend actually passed away from the disease. And what he found is that 85% of all of these cancers are diagnosed late, when someone has less than a 2% chance of survival. And our current gold standard test for this disease actually, like, is 60 years old. It costs $800 per test and is grossly inaccurate, missing 30% of all cancer. So armed with freshman biology, I decided to try and revolutionize cancer diagnostics. It was a bit lofty of a goal. However, after a few months of researching using Google and Wikipedia, and then I applied to a bunch of different labs. I came up with this idea for a new sensor. And seven months of hard work in the lab, I ended up with one small paper sensor that costs three cents and takes five minutes to run. It's 168 times faster, over 26,000 times less expensive, and over 400 times more sensitive than our current methods of detection, but also could be broadly extended potentially to really any disease ranging from Alzheimer's, other forms of cancer, even HIV, AIDS, and heart disease. So the possibilities are very exciting for this. This is amazing. Uh, so I love the story of, of how your teachers took the uh, magazine you were reading in class uh, when you when you kind of hit upon this as you were you were reading about uh, nanotubes and uh, antibodies and and I guess the teacher was talking about antibodies and you were thinking about uh, this article you were reading. What happened that day? Yeah. So. Um I actually had the epiphany moment, my breakthrough moment, where I came up with this idea in my high school biology class, a pretty unlikely place for innovation, especially since I hated my biology teacher. I mean, we did not get along. <laughs> However, I'd snuck in this article on water called Single-Walled Carbon Nanotubes, which are long, thin pipes of carbon that are an atom thick, and they're 150,000 the diameter of a single strand of hair. So they're extremely small, and they have these really amazing properties. They're kind of like the superheroes of material science. So I was reading about these under my desk. We were learning about antibodies, and antibodies is like a lock and key. It only reacts with one specific protein, in this case, a protein that's found in your bloodstream when you have these different types of cancer. And then it just kind of hit me, maybe if I combine these two concepts, you'll essentially get a network that only reacts with one protein, but also due to the properties of these nanotubes, it will actually change its electrical properties based on the amount of protein present, and thus I could measure the presence of pancreatic cancer using just an ohm meter that I got from Home Depot. I, well, I actually stole it from my dad, but... So, um, it's good to have a dad that has an ohm meter laying around. 
Yes. We have this woodshop garage where we always do science stuff. So it's uh, recently you were on 60 Minutes and we saw your basement and and uh, it was uh, I think it was morally safer that observed that it was not especially tidy. Yeah, um, science tends to trump cleaning in the basement. <laughs> so we have like Tesla coils and we have all of this different stuff and so. It's super fun to just do experiments down there with my brother. Yes, I, I I was amused by the fact that the FBI sent you a note to let you know that they were keeping track of you after you ordered all of the ingredients for, uh, was it nitroglycerin? Yes, yeah, we actually cooked up nitroglycerin on our kitchen countertop. We've also cultured E. coli there, and um, we've also ordered some uranium, so... <laughs> well... <laughs> What lab would be complete without uranium? My heavens, that's that's a basic uh, lab requirement, right? Of course, especially for the Andreka lab. So that's right. Well, I want to talk to you today about some big picture ideas. I think that there is a tendency. Let me see if I can frame this question for you for just a minute. But you may not be old enough to appreciate momentum the way that it and, and inertia and that's one of the things that's great about young people is they sometimes don't appreciate how how uh, how momentum tends to carry us through and it tends to define our thinking and so I think there are a lot of us that tend to think of lots of big world problems as just being inherent in the human condition that cancer is inherent in the human condition and we can never find a way to get rid of it. We can only treat it maybe incrementally better. Uh, and that we, we think about poverty and we think about homelessness, we think about uh, malaria, we think about all kinds of things as just being permanent parts of the human condition and oh isn't that a shame or just we've got to deal with it, we've got to cope with it, not change it. And I think that so many of these problems, if we really put our minds to it, our collective energy, if we draw on the Jack and Drakes of the world, if we empower them, encourage them, and participate and follow them, I think we can be in a different place 30 years from now. I think we can eliminate a number of these problems. And so I want to talk to you about that notion. Uh, do, you, do you think we can make real progress? Do we have to accept the human condition as we see it today? Yeah, I definitely think that we can make a lot of progress in a lot of, like, for example, cancer is one of the big ones that I'm interested in. And I believe that with the improvement of our diagnostic system, such as, like, with the diagnostic system that I created, as well as increased treatments, that within 30 years we can make significant progress on the vast majority of cancers and maybe even live in a cancer-free world. However, I'm not spelling out any possibilities there. But, I mean, just at the current rate of technology, I mean, it's definitely in the realm of reality to be there. And especially the millennial goals, I think we're going to get a lot closer to achieving those in the next few years. So, as we think about cancer and the limits of what science can do over the next 30 years, I guess that there are a couple of things I want to make sure we're thinking through. One is that I think there are there is a temptation in uh, the pharmaceutical world especially to develop better diagnostics and better treatments uh, short of a cure. 
because uh, a cure might be too efficient. We might literally hurt business. Uh, and I want to talk through how do we make sure that we keep the focus on actually moving us as close as possible to a cure, to literally eliminating cancer from being a social problem. How do we do that? I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of the notion that pharmaceutical companies are out to get us using cancer. Um, I, I think that all these companies and people have the best intention and that we're really working hard to come up with a new cure and really understand cancer as a disease. And I think that by combination of basic research as well as applied science, that we can definitely make progress in this field, but that will take both research funding and advocacy. And I think between those, that, that's our best chance of being able to do this. And really just also incorporating more people into the fight. So for example, um, younger kids such as me and a lot of other si young scientists are often kind of sidelined in serious scientific research because we're perceived as being too young and naive to actually have significant impact on research. While in fact, we're at this epitome of creativity and knowledge where we have the creativity to come up with these wild off the wall ideas, but we have enough knowledge to really make them a reality. And kids have the second advantage as to oftentimes great discoveries in fields come from people that aren't in that field whatsoever. And that's just because they haven't kind of been inundated with this one point of view and they can look at it in a, in a different way. Well, I think it's interesting. Uh, I'm glad that you've taken issue with my notion that pharmaceutical companies are, are, aren't the, the source of uh, the cure. I think that's a good, good and fair point. Let's, and I'm excited to develop further the idea of how we get more kids like you to participate in the process. The, the first question I would have, though, is how many kids have your kind of capability? It would seem to me that even you would have to recognize that you're, in, you're pretty exceptional, both in terms of your family circumstance and your, your raw capability and your interests. I mean, there just aren't a lot of 12, 13-year-old kids that say, I think I'm going to work on diagnosing pancreatic cancer. Most are thinking, I want to blow something up, right? That's about as cool as they get. I mean, every kid, I, I believe that I'm not that exceptional. I believe I'm actually pretty normal with my talents. I think that every kid is exceptional in their own way. Maybe it's not in science. Maybe it's in some other field. However, that doesn't lower their significance in the world. I think that we should really begin to realize that everyone has their unique set of talents and that they can help solve a global issue with their own unique set of talents in that way. And I think that by really empowering these kids, by because our school system, there's this, probably everyone has seen this, um, the Ken Robinson talk that's so, so famous for saying schools kill creativity. Well, that's actually a pretty accurate claim because they really just drum out your creativity efficiently and they make, for me, I used to be really interested in music and art, but then my teachers really squandered that just because they said, you have absolutely no talent in this field, and so they went into science. But, I mean, instead of telling a kid no, maybe you should look at it as a different way of thinking about a field rather than 
just not fitting in with the mold. How do we engage you? How do grown-ups, old people like me, how do we engage young people like you in meaningful ways when you're at that peak of creativity at high school age and you're bored in school anyway? How do we, what's the, what are the action items for us? How do we do it? So I just, I'm just speaking from my personal experience, especially in the realm of science, is one of the major problems is access to the field because what happens is essentially you have these scientific journals and they have all the greatest breaking research, but kids like me, we can't afford these articles. They cost too much. They cost $35 per article. And a lot of kids who could have great innovations like me simply can't afford those articles. And so we really need to stop sending the mixed message. I mean, in the world of pop culture and music, a new Katy Perry single costs 99 cents, while a seminal science article costs $35. I mean, which one do you think a kid's going to go for? So I think by making science articles at least as affordable as the world of pop culture and music, then we'll really begin to see some increased interest. So by making them more accessible, we can really have more interest in the realm of science. Would we be addressing your concern sufficiently if those articles were available to kids your age for free or at that 99 cent price point only to you or do we do we need to expand that to, to everyone? Does that, does that information deserve to be sort of set free? Yeah, that, that's one of the major things I'm working on right now, it's called the open access movement. And what we essentially have is this isn't just a problem for 15-year-old kids like me. This is a problem for everyone. You see, what happens is Harvard University recently released a statement saying major periodical subscriptions, especially to historically key providers that are now electronic, can't be sustained because they're just too much money. So when the richest academic institution in the world can't continue to pay for its articles, then how can you expect a 15-year-old to pay for his articles? So, by, a, by having these people create a very big challenge. What? That is a huge challenge. So, so what are the solutions? Who, who controls the, uh, this, this pricing? Uh, so, actually, um, it's the scientific journals, and what happens is Essentially, say you're a scientist, you do some research, and then in order to have a job, to continue having a job, to get grants, you have to publish. And the objective is to publish as many articles in the most prestigious journals as possible, so like Nature, Science, and South. However, the problem is the scientists first don't get, don't get paid for publishing their articles, so they, they're forced to give up their content, but then the journals turn back around and sell it to them at this inflated cost. And in addition, a lot of the scientific research is publicly funded, and so essentially the public has to first pay for the research, but also then pay to read it. And so we really have to see a shift in the paradigm of how we're pricing these journals, because knowledge shouldn't be a commodity, and science shouldn't be a luxury. It should be a basic human right that everyone can do, regardless of their background, because ideas don't discriminate who they come to, and so we should make it a... Uh, point, um, a really large priority to make sure that everyone can have the knowledge so that every great idea can be acted upon. I think that's a, a fantastic uh, idea. Do you see this as something that 
that should be the purview of government. I guess what I'm asking is, do you advocate the government requiring that, say, people who are taking federal grants for their research uh, have their information made public? It seems that that doesn't quite reach to the to the the you know the journals. How do we get the journals? Do we mandate that by law? Is there a role of government here, or is that uh, simply market pressure? How do we do that? So there's definitely a role of government here. So that's one of the main things that we're working on right now. The bill that we're trying to pass is called the Fair Access to Science and Technology Research Act, or FASTR, F-A-S-T-R. And what it's going to say is that all federally funded research, it has to be publicly available within six months of being published. And so that would be really phenomenal if that passed through Congress, simply because then 80% of all scientific research is funded by the government, so then 80% of all that research would be open to the public. And we've already seen that this is a very manageable task. I mean, with the current National Institutes of Health um, policy, it makes all of its research open access within 12 months. And by continuing that with all the other government agencies, we can really begin to see a difference in the way that journals publish. Because when 80% of your articles has to be open access, you're going to have to have a significant change in your business model. Because right how now, how would those journals survive economically without the revenue that that they're getting today? So that's one of their main complaints: is that we're killing jobs with this um, law, but we really aren't because. They just need to be a bit more innovative, and there are tons of other revenue streams. Because articles that are open access, they have a lot more traffic to them. So, for example, you could have avenue streams, or there are so many different revenue streams that you can have with these scientific journals that it's really preposterous that the journals haven't moved already. So, Public Library of Open Science, PLOS, is most definitely pretty much the preeminent open science publisher, and they've survived quite well. And I think that when other journals begin to see this, then they'll begin to make the shift as well. What, uh, what do you see as the opportunities for entrepreneurs in the broader world of, of science, uh, especially as it relates to cancer research? How do we get pe more people engaged? I, I guess what I'm trying to make the point is we entrepreneurship leads to vast wealth in a predictable way when people are launching new uh, web properties and, and they are instantly scalable. But most of those web properties aren't solving big social problems. We need more people who are working on big problems with a capital B, capital P, right? These are we, we need people working about on cancer and malaria and AIDS. What are the opportunities there for people to get involved and how do we get people to focus on those opportunities? So how I view it is the biggest problems in the world are also the biggest economic opportunities. I mean, when you solve a problem that impacts billions of people, you're nearly guaranteed to have a successful business because everyone will want that product. And so in the realm, this is a very exciting time to be in the medical field. I mean, just because we're seeing so many changes because medicine and biology are really starting to become an information technology. And that means that they're going to start progressing on the Moore's Law, meaning every 
18 months or every two years, we're going to begin seeing these two timings. So everything's going to become less expensive. Everything's going to become easier to do. And that's really going to help herald in this genomic revolution. I mean, a few years ago, it cost like $3 billion to sequence one genome. Now it costs only $1,000 and takes a few days. So by first in medical diagnostics, we're really seeing a change here because we've started out as symptom-based diagnostics. You have like a sore throat or you have a runny nose. Maybe you have a cold. And I actually typed in those symptoms to WebMD when I was sick, and it said I could be pregnant, have a cocaine addiction, or have cancer. So it wasn't exactly accurate, and it's very subjective, a lot of these symptoms. And now we're going to be shifting into this field of molecular diagnostics, where we're looking at your proteome, where the proteins are found in all the different body fluids and tissues. And then we're going to go into this kind of tricorder era with the tricorder X-Prize and the advent of those technologies, where we not only combine your symptoms, but we also add in your proteome and your genome and connect all three to make the most accurate, pretty much to the epitome of medical diagnostics. That's really the holy grail of the field. And then in terms of treatment, I'm not an expert there. However, we're seeing a lot of really amazing work with photodynamic therapy where we can treat cancer very specifically using the specific wavelength of light and non-toxic agents that won't injure other cells. And so we're seeing a lot of really exciting things with nanobots and all that. So only the future can tell where we're going to go. So what are the opportunities for kids your age? What what should they be studying? If, 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 if I were 16 and I wanted to be a player in cancer research, what should I be studying in high school? What major should I be choosing in college? What path do I go down if I want to be a player and have an impact? So um, one kind of bandwagon that I wish I had jumped on earlier that would really be helpful right now would be computer programming. I still think computers are kind of magical. I really don't understand them. However, computational biology is really going to be the game changer in the whole realm of medicine because, I mean, you can look and find patterns that humans ordinarily can't see. And also, they can just do so much more testing with computer programs than humans can. And I think that really by automating these tests that we're really going to see this um, surge in the survival rates of cancers and how we understand it. And so computer programming is one, and then also nanotechnology just as a field, just because... In my opinion, everything in medicine is becoming nano now, and just the intrinsic properties of these nano structures are really fascinating, have really great applicability towards the entire field of medicine. It, uh, I mean, it is amazing. It's hard for people to appreciate and understand. So the opportunities for kids are really pretty vast. If you want to be a player in in cancer research, there are a lot of different paths you go down. It doesn't have to be biology. It can be physics. It can be almost anything in the science. Yeah, because cancer is a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary research field where the great solutions come outside the field. So, for example, physicists can come up with new cancer therapies as well as chemists, and they all work together to form this multifaceted therapy and diagnostic tools. Well... I guess the last thing I want to shift to before we before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about values. 
what are the societal values that we need to foster, we need to encourage in order for us to move forward successfully on solving these big problems? So I really think that a lot of um, this not only holds true for younger kids but pretty much everyone is that you're going to be the greatest advocate for your research because if you don't believe in your research then who will? And I found that because I got 200 no's from professors, I got told no by my parents, I got told no by my teachers, but by persisting I was able to come up with this diagnostic test strip. And I think that what we really have to keep in mind is that this kind of fearless mentality where who cares if you fail because you learn from your failures. And think of a 15-year-old who didn't quite know what a pancreas was could find a new way to attack pancreatic cancer. Just imagine what you could do. Yeah, that really is a, a great punchline for our discussion. But to be fearless, I think that is a great, great point. Well, Jack, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to, to be with us and uh, I appreciate your insights. They're tremendous. Uh, of course, you're an inspiration to to everyone who who hears you and sees you. And I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to allow us to dig a little deeper on some of these things that you think deeply about and care so much about. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Thanks so much for doing this. All right, and and people want to be able to connect with you. Uh, where do they connect with you best? Uh, you're on Facebook. What's your? How do people find you on Facebook? So just look up my name, J-A-C-K, and then A-N-D-R-A-K-A, and the same as my Twitter handle, which is just at Jack Andraka. Then also, if you want, you can email me questions at jackandraka at gmail.com. Very good. Uh, does, do, you ever, do you get a lot of email, Jack? Yes, I do. Lots and lots, thousands. <laughs> so always fun to go through those. But I love reading people's stories and ideas, so send them over. Uh, you're a good sport. Jack, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, again, thank you. Thank you. All righty, let's do some good. Yes. This is Devin Thorpe. Thank you for joining me today for this podcast, which was recorded during a live broadcast of this interview via Google Hangouts on Air. A video recording of the interview is available at youtube.com slash devonthorpe. You can learn more about the work of the Your Mark on the World Center at yourmarkontheworld.com.